Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. I'm here today with Fran Wagonick, Assistant Superintendent of the Santa Barbara Unified School District. How are you today, Fran? I'm good. Thank you for taking some time to, to talk to uh, listeners of the podcast. I've been uh, watching you, observing you over the years. We've talked for stories, and I've always been super impressed with your understanding of the school district. I always learn something when you talk at the board meetings, and really impressed with your thoughtfulness and how much you seem to care about the students even amid all of the drama that we can sometimes have at the school district so i just wanted to kind of dive in and you know ask you a little bit about you know what your take is right now in terms of what we're dealing with what are your thoughts right now what's it like to be an administrator with all of these unknowns you know definitely i would say i'm not alone as a as an education educator in saying that this is the 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 biggest problem that we've had to tackle i mean it's just it's huge because there's so many different layers to it and and people have so many opinions about it and i think our leadership in the state has been pretty good but as as a as a nation um the the vacuum of leadership um is definitely felt and uh so it it's difficult because it's a moving target it's difficult, but it's also doable. You know, we will show up and we will we will work through this and continue to work through the summer to to uh, get things ready to have students at school as much as we possibly can. This issue that we've been talking about in the school district, equity. Okay, so let's talk mm-hmm. just about technological equity first, mm-hmm. digital equity. It feels as though the equity gaps widen (laughs) during this pandemic to some degree because when you're in a classroom to a large degree you are the same right you're there you're in front of the teacher you're getting a similar experience and of course we all bring different things to that room but it's sort of you're all there and you're learning when you do it remotely and you do it through zoom one of the things that i notice is that a lot of it is sort of dependent on the student and their ability to access technology. It's the teacher, how engaged is the teacher in terms of doing a a synchronous class or a live Zoom class versus putting it through Google Classroom and sort of letting the, the student sort of figure it out on their own. I sort of feel like if you were struggling, if you're a student who was struggling before the pandemic, it's probably really a lot harder when you're trying to learn at home. Um, and, and if you were a student who was like totally into it in the classroom and you got everything and you nailed it, um, the transition is a little bit easier for you when you have to learn at home yourself through the computer. So I'm wondering if you could talk to me about some of the equity issues that may have come up when we went from in class to remote learning and how the district sort of managed that whole puzzle. Well, I think your observation that um generally speaking there's um there the setting of a classroom is equitable physically um but when we talk about home um it's it's just absolutely not the case and in santa barbara we talk about the the great discrepancy between you know economically that we have in this community and um so when you think about home what does home mean? I mean, I have literally, as an educator, been 
in a student's home that was a palatial mansion in Montecito. I have also been in a home that is a converted garage where four people live with no running water. So when we're talking about home, we have everything in between those two extremes. And um, so that's just the physical setting of home, but then we have all the other pieces of home. Who's at home? How many people are in the home? How much um, personal space does each student have? Uh, we have, um, I heard a report from one teacher who said they were checking in regularly with a student who needed assistance. And, and at first the student wouldn't come on the Zoom. And then finally the, the teacher um, coaxed the student to come on to Zoom after three or four meetings. And, and she was sitting under a table in a living room because it was all the only it was the most quiet private space that she could find in her home um, and so I mean the the inequities are sharpened and magnified when when we're it through this pandemic I think in a myriad of ways but that's really what I think about now in terms of the technology itself are I give Props to our ETS department, Todd Rickman, Brian Rouse, and their team for, for working to get as, you know, as many iPads out, Wi-Fi hotspots, really working to make sure folks had access. Um, our family engagement unit was checking in with families who were having uh, trouble and needed assistance. We really had this full force effort. So even when you have the hardware, that hardware is not necessarily equivalent, right? Because the Wi-Fi hotspot from Cox, not as strong as, as my powerful router that I was able to go out to Best Buy and, and purchase knowing that I was going to be at home. So um, yeah, those things just, um, equality is not always equity. Yeah. We, we're talking a lot about equity right now, and I'm wondering if you could maybe just define it from your from your perspective. It's a conversation in the in the community. And we sort of hear all the people. We hear people take the word equity and turn it around and apply it to them, you know, and sort of their their view of what it is. But from your perspective, what is equity in the classroom? What does that mean for for students? What is the goal? What are we trying to achieve with equity in the classroom? Equity is about meeting each student where they are and giving them what they need in order to access um, all the educational opportunities that are out there, and so. For you know, a lot of kids in our community, we don't have to give them a lot. Um, others, they may, they need a little bit extra. They need a few extra supports, and then there are others who need a whole lot of supports um, for a variety of reasons, whether that be economic, their family situation, if they have disabilities, whatever it is. Um, we need to be prepared to do what we need to do for each individual student to make sure that, the, and and it's easy for that to come out of my mouth sounding like, you know, a, a, a trope, like something we just say, but it actually very much is true. And there's this great graphic of three students and they're trying to watch a baseball game. And the first one, the student's tall enough to see over the fence. They're like behind right field. They're trying to see over the fence. And the, the first one's tall enough he can see right over. The second one can't see over, but needs one box to be able to see over. The next one needs two boxes, then they can see over. And that's a good way to look at equity. Each, 
each kid got what they needed to be able to see that game. That was going. That um, visual was going around for quite a few years, and then um, a year or so ago, they they um, came out with a new one, and it was actually a chain link fence, and nobody needed boxes, and and the kid in the wheelchair who couldn't even get on a box is able to see through the chain link fence, mm-hmm. and that to me is like that's that's justice, right? Mm-hmm. That's like breaking down the barriers that get in the way of being able to be involved in the game. Tell me a little bit about your story. You grew up in Santa Barbara, went to local schools. Um, how did you? Did. How did you come to have this sort of heart and mindset and sort of view of equity in the world that you have today? Sort of, how did you get to be the Fran we know? Yeah. Uh, well, so I came. I yeah, I came here, uh, moved here in the first grade, and. Um, September of 1972, I was six years old, and um, so people can do the math, figure out how old, I'm 54. And went to local schools, I went to Vieja Valley and La Colina and San Marcos, and you know, in my mind, had this really great, like 1970s kid in Santa Barbara experience, um, seen the community change a lot and stay the same in a lot of ways, but, so I grew up, Kind of Hope Ranch Annex and uh, Nolita area. It wasn't called that back then, but I didn't even know the east side of Santa Barbara existed as a kid. I knew we had friends who lived in this different area of Santa Barbara, but like I don't even remember the first time I was on Milpa Street. Um, and definitely um, the only reason I did know. Um, the west side and that was because our, the church we went to was down on the west side and um, we were actually not allowed to stray far from the church itself and go into the neighborhood um, my brother would also often take off and go to Fernando's market between Sunday school and church it was like we were isolated from and the um, so, you know, thinking about high school, high school uh, was, uh, San Marcos was very, very, um, a, a lot of um, white middle class and upper middle class students at that time with some um, Latino students and a, and a few black students, but not a lot of diversity versus Santa Barbara High, which was a lot more diverse. But um, so it was interesting. That was how I grew up pretty solid middle-class white. And you know, for me, I think about it and what it really came down to for me in terms of equity was just slowly over time working with students. And I started out as a teacher, um, left education for a while in the mid to late 90s and then came back as a school counselor in early uh, 2000s. And I was working with, uh, we had a school called Community Day School, which was a junior high version of La Cuesta at that time. And um, so many of those students that I had now almost 20 years ago are, um, a lot of them are in prison now. And they were little, when I think about it, they were 12, 13, 14 years old. They were really young, but I just learned a lot from working with them. And I know that I made a lot of mistakes um, in working with them. You know. Um, I think of them often and want to go back and make apologies for uh, just not, I think 
make apologies for acting from a place of like a white savior complex. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this whole thing with um, just communities has, it's been really uh, interesting to watch um, those who who want to end the work we do with just communities because just communities help change my whole perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and to really see my privilege, um, even though I didn't see it because I'm swimming in it, right? Um, and I'm not to blame for my privilege, but but they helped with that, and they helped me see how to work with students um, as individuals, and and really um, try to break down the um, barriers that that exist for kids, all kids, to have equal opportunity. And so that's been kind of a 20-year journey for me to to um, really see that my privilege exists. And I, it's my responsibility to, to leverage it and, and use it for good purposes, yeah. So how were, how were you before, before the training, when you talk about sort of maybe a little bit of guilt or a white savior sort of perspective, what were you doing and how did you learn to change that at the time? Well, I think um, in looking back, you know, I... I perceive myself as, um, you know, being kind and open and wanting to help. And um, my way to help was to help guide students to be like me. But how is a, you know, how is a 13-year-old who lives on the east side, um, who's Latinx, why do they have to become like me and walk the same path as me? you know, white girl who was born in Texas in the 1960s to to completely di- different circumstances, and I think that's that's um, you know just do it this way, and also not understanding. I think back then, really not understanding what those kids' lives were like. So over time, um, beginning to learn more about um, kids and asking them questions and not making assumptions. That's the other side is trying to help kids and making assumptions they need help when they don't need my help at all. Mm-hmm. So um, so that has been super, uh, I think the biggest piece was getting to know kids as individuals and being available uh, to them as the people that they are, as the individuals that they are. Being the principal of La Cuesta and Alta Vista, um, also had a huge impact on me. I mean, I think every every role that I've held, I've I've just grown a little bit more, but it's always because of these experiences with individual students. So I think about when I was an assistant principal at Santa Barbara High School around about 2010, and this girl came in, and um, a teacher wasn't letting her submit uh, a paper late. And she said, but I'm almost done, I'm almost done. And I said, well, you know, is it on your computer? And she says, no, I I type my papers on my phone. So this was 2010. This wasn't even like current. And I just thought, it's like, you know things in the abstract. Know things, you know, some kids have to really struggle uh, more than others. But then when you're sitting across from a kid who's so earnest about just getting something done, it's those, so it's those individual situations where it's like, oh my gosh, I have to do better. Like I have to help kids <laughs> who have to write their papers on 
cell phones. You know, and this was like an AP language paper. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a couple paragraphs. So, so yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's the kids that I work with in school attendance review board. It's the students and families that I meet through the expulsion process where you really look at like what led to this, what's going on. Um, it's, it's all just a process because I am not, um, I'm not even close to, to being actualized around this work of equity yet. I've got a long way to go. And where I am right now is really trying to sit and listen a lot more to, to people. Um, so, How do you interact or react to the parents? You know, I cover the school board meetings, and it gets really, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine anybody sitting on the school board, a, a staffer or a board school board member, and not get your feelings hurt. You just feel personally insulted because some of the criticisms are very personal about mm-hmm. your motives, your intents, what you're really trying to do. How do you, do you get mad? How do you respond internally when you hear parents say, you just need to focus on literacy and math and leave the social, emotional learning to the parents? Um, You have an agenda. Uh, Look at our literacy rates. Look at the achievement gap. When they want to dump everything on you individually or others Mm -hmm. individually, how do you sort of internalize that without getting defensive and wanting to fight back? Well, I think that's a great question. Um, I think there's a difference. Um, definitely, we have parents who come up and whatever the topic is, um, you know, they've decided it's important they come speak out. And a lot of times, you know, they come speak and it's like, oh, I want to, I want to follow them out and give them some information because. I think it would help them. And then there are the folks who come and, and um, attack us, frankly. And um, we come to expect it now because it's been going on for over a year. You know, the feeling that I feel is um, threatened, personally threatened. I've learned um, with certain folks who we hear from often, I try to practice it's about them, it's not about me. This is all about what's going on for them. And I wonder... You know, I wonder where that that anger and vitriol comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, I I certainly, if if uh, thought that we could sit down and have a reasonable conversation to try to understand each other, that would be a good thing. I don't know with some folks that it is, but it does hurt. You know, when 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 people come and say that you shouldn't have your job, mm-hmm. that you should go to jail. I mean. For me, it's more like I know, okay, that's that person, and they're saying that thing. But, you know, my my parents live here in town. They watch the school board meeting, and, and they're almost 80. Like, I don't want them being afraid for me. Mm-hmm. Some of the people who get attacked, you know, they have children. We have lives. We're people. And so, um, but that's also part of our job. And, and fortunately, we have each other um, to lean on and just sort of get through. And um, so now I usually just take a deep breath and know that it'll be over and then we'll move on. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about your story? Um, some of the issues maybe you've dealt with uh, 
discrimination or inequity mm-hmm. and how you were able to overcome that. I mean, you talk about being a white woman of privilege, but obviously mm-hmm. there's some areas in your life where you don't have privilege. And mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that journey has been like for you? Um, well, I'm a woman, so um, there's that. Um, I, from a very small age, very young age, um, saw... I saw that. I saw that that girls and boys were treated differently, um, that I was treated differently than my brother. Not necessarily worse. I mean, not worse, but different. And that people acted different ways and had different expectations of me. So there's there's been that. And there's, you know, I've learned to navigate um, the world. And and for women, especially women in leadership, Sometimes the expectations for us are different, just like they are in other areas of leadership. But for me, um, being gay has been the area where I've, you know, experienced um, experienced the most discrimination. And to me, that does not compare to um, what um, people of color experience, because um, I'm not wearing that around. You know, people don't. Uh, a lot of times they may suspect it, but um, I don't, um, you, you know what I'm saying. It's yeah. just, it's it's not obvious. And so, but there has been discrimination. I mean, I've been, I've gotten, I got a death threat um, a number of years back. Um, and that death threat was actually mailed to my parents' house. Somebody went mm. to the mailbox and, and um, I've had, um, Things shouted at me, my partner and I on State Street, um, you know, just experienced discrimination. And, you know, I, we've, we've seen a lot change. Our, our wedding was, uh, it'll be 20 years on August 27th, but it wasn't legal until June of 2008. And we actually were the first um, um, same-sex couple legally married in the county of Santa Barbara. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. just because we kind of filled our paperwork out the fastest. There were like four or five couples there the first morning, and we ended up just being the first one. Right. So, um, but you know, we've been on that ride, and I know what it's like to be tokenized, and you know, all those sorts of things. Like, oh, can you come speak to this group about this? Can you educate us on this? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, again, it's not the same as, as people of color experience, but at least I've been bit through it. And so I think sometimes I remember not to do the same things, um, that, that I've experienced, but so that's, you know, that's given me, um, some insight. If you don't mind me asking, did you come out young early? Was it a no, later decision? Um, so I'm 54. I didn't come out, um, and coming out is this, like, obviously long process. Yeah. I kind of came out to myself in, in, my, in college. I wondered about myself in high school, um, came out to myself in college, tried not to be gay um, through the 80s, and then finally, uh, you know, it was at a place where I just had to. It was that or kind of, I don't know. And so, um, so yeah, I came out in my late 20s, um, in the late 90s, and, um, and it's been quite a ride and quite a process. I mean, it wasn't 
This wasn't something that all the members of my family were happy about, and so we've gone through a process with that. I, fortunately, one of my brothers was super, super supportive, and a, most of my friends. But even, you know, in the late 90s, that was still like, it is not like, I mean, I shouldn't say that, that young people have it easy today. It's just it's so different for a lot, uh, a lot of uh, kids. Um, so there's that. I'm also, um, last November, I was 20 years clean and sober. Oh. So I actually, um, a lot of the pain, um, anxiety, depression that I struggled with because of my sexuality, I was self-medicating around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got sober in November of 1999. And um, that, I, I think I'd be remiss not to say that that paints a lot of the way that I approach my work is that, um, you know, I, I am a believer in second and third and fourth chances. And I don't believe that people are inherently bad. Do we need to, do we need to make repair for our mistakes? Absolutely. But, um, so with students, I see that and I, because I've experienced, um, my own struggles with anxiety and depression since childhood, you know, I, I know what other kids are experiencing Mm -hmm. or kids. I'm not a kid anymore, but you know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying. So, um, I think all my life experience does definitely come into play. I, I have empathy for the kid who messes up. And again, that doesn't mean that they get off scot-free because so it needs to be hard. You know, people aren't, don't, um, recover if um, they don't have bumps along the way. And so, but it does help me kind of navigate through that. Um, And then I also have um, mental um, illness in my family. My own, my own partner has, um, is bipolar um, treated and does very well, but um, had four suicide attempts as a young, a young person. So um, yeah, there are a lot of things in my life that have just um, painted why I do this work, why I'm so passionate about it, and how I approach it. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about overcoming adversity. Mm-hmm. And people who overcome adversity or trauma early in life, if they're able to get the support they need as they get older, mm-hmm. they're able to help people. They're able to mm-hmm. use their own experiences to sort of guide them and empathize and be sort of somebody who's less judgmental. And then you know, everybody has some kind of adversity to deal with. But you know, I've always found that like people who've had some stuff, they've had to overcome some serious <laughs> stuff. Um, they um, are kind of cool people to have around because they know how to navigate situations without, without panic. You know? mm-hmm. and, and they've been there. And if you've never had any trauma or adversity, and then all of a sudden you have it as an adult, you know, sometimes that's that's a different process than somebody who's had to deal with that their right. their whole life. And I think that shows that shows with you. You seem really patient when you're dealing with people when you're up there. Um, let's talk up a little bit about uh, the recent protests and the students who organized, who held the protest and they marched and they went to the police station and then or they went to the school district as well. Uh, you were here that day. You spoke. Mm-hmm. I was here, and uh, it was pretty powerful. You know, just anytime you have like that large amount of people, right. it's powerful. You feel the energy of others. 
And then you've got young people who are taking the charge, you know, high school students who are leading that effort. And so it's, it's, it's so hard to speak publicly in, in any setting. And then when you do it in front of a large live crowd and you're doing it in this activism state, it's, it's hard, it's difficult, there's bravery involved. Right. And no matter what you think about what they're doing, when you see a young person who's, who's standing up and taking a stand for something they believe in, it's, it's, it's admirable. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like for you to be out there that day <laughs> and to hear those speeches and see that crowd? Well, uh, I'll tell you what, I stopped by Smart and Final on the way here because we had gotten the heads up that they were coming. I said, well, then some of us need to be there to to meet them. And and I honestly, I've been involved in marches. I went to the Sunken Gardens with Carrie Matsuoka the, the morning after Trump was elected and witnessed that, and that was amazing. Um, but I thought... Now, you know, we're going to have probably a couple hundred, two to five hundred kids, mm-hmm. young people. And so I like bought some tangerines and some plums and some waters and I bought enough maybe for 50 and they just kept coming and coming and coming and we couldn't see the end of it. They were around the corner down De La Guerra and... I'll tell you what, other than the fact there was no social distancing, because I'm in this like dual world, right? We all are of like the the civil unrest and and COVID. And it was like, ah, oh, they're all right with each other. But I'll tell you what, 90% of them, you saw it, like they were masked up. Yeah. And so, but I was just, my heart was pretty full that day because of how powerful it was to see them stand up for what they believed in, regardless. I don't think it even, I mean, to me, the the issue of why they were there is super important, but that they organized that and they were so passionate about it. And, and there was such a feeling of togetherness and that they had, they were really leading those leaders. You know, Shakir got up there with the, the megaphone um, and, and just, it was hard. It's hard to describe, and you were here, but it was super powerful. And um, so, taking their demands um, was the easy part of all of this. I know that there are folks out there um, making accusations about, you know, what the intent is with, you know, why are you giving in to young people's demands? Why are you giving in to the demands of Black Lives Matter? Why, you know, um, I don't even look at it that way. I look at it as that same thing that we, we've been chatting about, and that is if kids aren't feeling comfortable in school, if we're missing on equity, that's our work to fix it. So, um, you know, this isn't about communism, and it isn't about all these other things. It, it's really our job is to make sure that students learn. And I'll say, yeah, for the, there are folks who talk about literacy and how important that is. If a kid doesn't feel safe in class, they're not learning. I don't care what it is we're trying to deliver. And so what they were telling us is, we don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. We don't feel seen, we don't feel heard, and that's our job. So whatever anybody thinks the motives are, that's the motive. Yeah. Access to education, that's the motive. And you think about what school is supposed to do. So many students, when they get to college, you know, there's this sort of perception of 
know, college is when you really find yourself and you figure it mm-hmm. out, you know. And well, there's no reason why in high school, you know, you can't do that as well. Mm-hmm. And so these, some of these students who are who are activists, they're finding themselves. They're, they're speaking mm-hmm. out and they're learning from it. And that is super important. I mean, they've been empowered in some way to be able to have their voice and speak mm-hmm. their voice. And so that's an incredible skill that they're that they are learning. And I'm wondering, you know, when we talk about the fact, you know, giving into to demands and, and, and that sort of thing, uh, when we're talking about them coming and them talking, and it's a big protest, and then they're speaking at uh, the school board meetings. Uh, do you do you get any sense that there's an understanding of how difficult it is to be an administrator and to be able to be in public education and and you can't always just flip the switch mm-hmm. and change something. Do you, do you get the sense that those students understand bureaucracy yet and that that, that things are actually really difficult despite everybody's best intentions that's a that's a really good i mean all your questions have been good but that that one's important um some of us got to participate in a listening session and that's what's really coming out is um understanding the bureaucracy i think most people who speak at school board meetings like it would be great to offer classes on bureaucracy and what we have to um, go through because plenty of times we're like cursing the bureaucracy ourselves hmm. and and so but I'll tell you what um, the student group in my experience um, in the last few weeks just with them in that short time is they want to understand that stuff mm-hmm. they want to they want to understand how the system works <laughs> um, but by the same token, we can't use that as an excuse not to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, there wasn't a demand. Part of the thing with the demands is some of it was calling things out, like calling racism a, a public health crisis, um, public health emergency. Um, but a lot of the things, we're already in the process. We're already working mm-hmm. through it. So the question is, why is it so slow? It's so slow because of the system that we work within. Yeah. So, but I'd say they are open to understanding, but not letting us off the hook. Right, and there was some <laughs> compromise with the school resource officers. I, initially, maybe there was an effort to just get rid of them altogether, and now there's a lot of anti-bias training that they have to undergo. So it sort of felt like there was some acknowledgement that okay, we don't necess- there was compromise. We don't have to necessarily do that what we mm-hmm. originally thought. Maybe it can be something else. Am I am I understanding how that went down? Correctly? Yeah, well, and and folks were questioning that. Adults were questioning, you know, what happened there, and you know, um, I think some people filled in the blanks with, well, you must have, you know, you must have somehow strong armed the students into changing their demand. They came with a change of their demand before they changed it all on their own, and I actually asked them, you know, what what led you to that. And uh, Talia Hamilton's response, you know, was that um, that they had surveyed other students, and you know, their reality, this Generation Z or the Zoom generation, they're the generation of school shootings. They're the generation of internet um, harassment. You know, me, uh, social media um, threats, all these things, and so. I think that's where the perspective came from. But I, don't, I wasn't satisfied 
to say, um, well, we'll just, you know, just the anti-bias and the, uh, and the, um, what's the other piece? Oh, the, the de-escalation mm -hmm. training. You know, what this is about is not necessarily extra, but making sure that each law enforcement officer who's on our campuses has the requisite training. But also, um, we want to evaluate the perception of those who come in contact with law enforcement on our campuses so that we make sure that that's going smoothly. Um, so that's how that played out, and it came from the students. Yeah. Okay. Just a couple more things. Um, there was a lot of talk about increased suicide attempts that came out in one of your reports at the school board. Are we seeing that plateau in the last month or so? Is it I mean, getting better? What is the district doing to sort of minimize, reduce, help students who may be struggling? Um, we did see um, during the quarantine or the shutdown, we saw an increase in attempts, yeah. and that was verified um, by Cottage Hospital that they were seeing more attempts um, across all ages, including adolescents. Um, when we saw that happening, we brought a team of about 20 um, counselors and administrators, teachers together to do three different campaigns, one for students, one for staff, and one for parents on, you know, a reminder of what to do if you or someone else is depressed or thinking about uh, suicide um, and just doing those campaigns to, to elevate everyone's awareness around it. Um, it's hard when school ends because school counselors who often receive these reports and even the administrators who are on their, uh, all everyone's on their well-deserved time off, so there's no one to receive the reports. So I'm not sure where we stand since uh, June 3rd on that. Mm -hmm. um, we did um, fund um, extra counseling for this summer for adolescents. So family service agency is employing um, extra therapists so that um, the students who are receiving counseling at school can continue to get those therapeutic services through the summer. And I think that's, hopefully that's going to be helpful. We just don't, in our community, we just need a lot of um, youth mental wellness. That's mm -hmm. just, that's a huge, huge area of need um, that still needs more attention. Yeah, there's a greater awareness of mental health with adults and a greater mm -hmm. understanding, but there seems to be a little bit of a dismissive attitude maybe with young people at times. Mm -hmm. um, they're growing up. Oh, they'll get through it. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe not taking it seriously as as they should. Is that part of the Just Communities training at all? Is there suicide awareness or uh, issues to identify that if you're a teacher? Uh, not through Just Communities, yeah. but we um, we do a program called Signs of Suicide each year for grades 7, 9, and 12. Oh, okay. Because uh, graduating seniors, that's a big, that transition year is, is a high-risk time. Um, and then teachers participate in that training, uh, it, it happens in classrooms. We also do an assessment of um, student depression and suicidality at that time um, to catch students who are in need of services. So that happens. Um, we have um, youth mental health first aid that's provided through the Mental Wellness Center. 
we uh, team up with them and Family Service Agency on that. Um, we have some psychological first aid that goes on, but we still need more. And so um, one big um, initiative we're launching next year is um, called Sources of Strength, and it's a peer-based um, uh, program that has adult advisors, and that'll be happening on our three um, traditional high school campuses. We'll have the Sources of Strength um, program so that peer student uh, peer leaders can um, work with their with each other because as we know teenagers talk to each other mm -hmm. no they don't that's a time period when they often think we don't know what we're talking about so yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, wrapping up here we have a new superintendent coming along mm -hmm. we have a lot of uncertainty with what school is going to look like come August 18th uh, Talk to me about your thoughts, your attitudes, your feelings about sort of a, a new uh, superintendent working through this pandemic, overcoming it. Um, what's, what, how excited are you going ahead? Um, yeah, obviously um, sad to see. Uh, I'll miss Kerry. Yeah. Not really sad. I mean, he's retiring. How awesome for him. Good for him. I look forward to that um, for me. But... Um, Excited to have Hilda Maldonado coming on. Um, in I've had the chance to interact with her personally, uh, in person several times, but also by phone and through email. And um, I think she's just going to bring some real dynamic approaches to this. And and I already see um, what her approach is to the reopening of school and responding to the pandemic as well as the civil unrest and, and uh, uh, Black Lives Matter uh, movement. So um, I'm ready. You know, she sees things um, uh, very pragmatically, but really um, emphasizes um, reaching out to families and students and community stakeholders and, of course, staff and really listening a lot. Um, so as much as it's a super heavy lift right now, um, looking forward to having Hilda lead us through that and working with her. Just, well, thanks, Fran. I really yeah. appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about all these important, important issues. So. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay. Have a great one. Thank you. You too.